We're back again, Lucas Van Oss and me, The Meaning Code, to talk about Wolfgang Smith. And this will be part two. And I think this time, Lucas, you have kind of looked into the whole issue of vertical causation. And so I'm really interested in hearing what you have to say. And I will jump in with some uh, thoughts that I had after rereading Wolfgang's book, The Vertical Ascent. So we're going to be discussing the quantum enigma and vertical causation is going to play a key role in that. And we're going to jump. Well, we're going to walk through it slowly. Not going to jump. We're going to calm down. Um, so we're just going to start with the basics, quantum physics. It sounds maybe a bit scary, but it really isn't. It's basically when you're speaking about energy and matter at the smallest level. So atomic and subatomic, that's when you're talking about quantum physics. So I think a century ago, um, we started to discover this this realm of quantum physics, the the smallest possible realm, and it really confused a lot of people, especially the physicists, because the laws of physics don't really seem to apply. So Newtonian physics, Einsteinian relativity, they, they really don't apply. Um, why do I say that? It's because you have quantum particles, right? I don't even know if I can call them particles, that, that multi-locate, so they're at at multiple locations at the same time, which is extremely enigmatic and and mysterious. And with that, you also have a sort of non-existence of these particles, if they're not observed at least. So these, these are what some people also call probabilities. So there aren't actually, you can't pin them down somewhere. You can't say that they're one thing. Um, they're, they're more of a probability. And so the most beautiful so let me, part, let me I, ask Let me ask a question about that, because this is something I always wonder about. When they call it a probability, are they saying, you know, like they say, it's either a wave or a particle. But is the wave just uh, a visual representation of all the places the particle could be in this? Because um, particles are moving all the time. You know, when yeah. Feynman talks about quantum physics, he always talks about particles jiggling. Everything's jiggling underneath. It's all moving all the time. So, <laughs> so maybe in this jiggling, they're, they're, the particles are jiggling in this wave and there's that particle is somewhere along that wave. And then when you measure it, oh, that's where it is on the wave. Is that what it means by probabilities? Or is it more like, the particles are everywhere and then there's just some sort of probability of where it is. I mean, that's the part I don't get. I don't think the scientists themselves really do, to be honest, oh. but that's why I, I hesitate <laughs> to call it particles because say we're having this visual image right now of particles dancing right now. We are talking about physical particles, but what Wolfgang Smith exactly says is that they're really not, they're not existing, that they're, they're they're between being and not being, as, as Heisenberg would say. Um, that's all the wisdom I can offer on it. Oh, I don't so know exactly. More, more, like, more like potential. Yeah, potential, like uh, Aristotle would say. So, but like, <laughs> I was speaking with Karen offline. Um, both of us don't really know what we're talking about. We're dancing through this, this thinker, and um, we really like his ideas. So comment section, if you want to correct us, if you want to help us out. Let us know, but this is what what we understand thus far, and we're just uh, 
we're making our way through it, but it's extremely interesting. So the part I found most interesting when I first discovered quantum physics, uh, I'd say a year or two ago, is that, like you said, when you observe the quantum particles, you affect how they react, and then you bring them into being, you bring them into existence, which is completely enigmatic because walking a bit back to our last episode, we spoke about Descartes' notion of bifurcation, which basically says that the world consists of res extense and res cogitans. So that means things of the mind and things outside the mind, basically. And it it's also something to do with the metaphysics of Aristotle, which is like a subject-object duality. And both of them bring you to an idea that, that we are observers that are disconnected from the natural world. We can observe it and we're not a part of it. But in quantum physics, you really see that we're completely entangled in what we measure. So much so that we completely affect the, the outcome of the measurement itself. So this whole idea of us being separated from nature is directly falsified by quantum physics and which is also why i think that physicists have been so confused by it let's say so that's the main premise so this is the 20th century people are really confused um they're trying to make sense of it with newtonian and einsteinian physics and they've taken these theories almost as their reality which um not a great not a great idea usually to take a theory as reality because and, and the reason is that if you if you reduce the world down to nothing but these amorphous particles that are then there's there's no meaning left everything is is yeah. gone but one of the things that you mentioned just there that really stood out to me you said <clears throat> we are not separated from nature no and I've never thought about the quantum physics issue that way, because what that really does is take you right back into Barfield's thought that in in very early humanity and you know the evolution of consciousness and all of those ideas, people felt much more as though they were not only connected to nature, but but that nature and and human thought and consciousness were were all connected together. So there was more of a, a feeling of being a part of the world and not yeah. being a separate entity looking at the world. And why would you ever exploit yourself? Why would you ever? I love this line by, uh, there's this guy called Sadhguru. He's like, uh, he's a bit of a guru. <laughs> and he says... <laughs> If you if you finally understand that you're one with the world, you would you would never hurt it because you would never cut off your own hand, type of deal. Mm -hmm. So I think this thought has really uncovered a lot of. I would say no, not uncovered. I think it's elicited a lot of bad behavior in that sense because when you start to disconnect yourself from the world, you disconnect from yourself basically. So mm -hmm. you're no longer aligned with yourself or with the world at large, and. I really like discovering this work because it gives us an opportunity for people to recover from this through a scientific way, which, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is such a strength because we kind of need this bridge right now to get mm -hmm. back. And, and Wolfgang is a, he's a perfect person to, to offer us that. 
so yeah, I, I really like this this notion though, being being connected to nature, being nature actually. Um, I think what I should do, Karen, is share my screen again just to bring back the cosmic icon. Let's see if I can do that. Can you see my mouse as well or no? Yes. Uh huh. Okay. So we're going to go back. If you didn't see episode one, I do recommend watching it because we're building off of a lot of that work, but we're just going to repeat. This is the cosmic icon Wolfgang has introduced in his work. He doesn't invent this cosmic icon. This cosmic icon comes from the Vedic tradition from India and from the Platonic tradition, which again is not explicitly stated in there, but Wolfgang sees it as a part of it. So we have a circle right here and a line and a dot. The dot is the most important part for us, I think, because it's the the eternal plane. It's where all being comes from. In this realm, there is no time, nor is there any space. You likely have not experienced this realm yourself, at least not in this uh, worldly existence, because Wolfgang basically says that if you want to attain to this level, it takes a, a lifelong celibacy spiritual quest before you get there. Um, but this is basically where all being comes from. Now, going down, all of this is the intermediary plane. So between the, the dot and the circumference is the intermediary plane. We have access to this in our dreams, in our thoughts. Uh, when I'm speaking to Karen and we speak about abstract concepts, this is where we basically are. And the outside circumference is the corporeal plane. This is what we perceive uh, the world in our waking state is what it looks like. Um, so colors, sounds, but also quantity. And very importantly, when we're talking about all these physicists, what they basically have done is reduce reality to something that is not even corporeal. So it doesn't even have the quality. It is only quantity. Because to the physicist, all that is real is actually measurable. So what that does is it takes quality as something subjective, and something that is not inherent to the world. Um, so why is this important for today's talk is because we're talking about quantum physics. And according to Wolfgang, I don't know if I can zoom in. You see my zoom in? Yes. Uh -huh. um, the quantum realm is actually not here. It's also not the physical realm because the physical realm is like below the corporeal. It's kind of like a sub, um, yeah, would you say that derivative of the corporeal? The quantum realm is more outside of their circumference. So between being and non-being. And basically what Wolfgang says is, he says that he resolves this whole issue of this this, this confusion about the, the, the measurement that we make and the measurement bringing things into existence by saying that basically what we're doing when we measure these things is we bring them into the corporeal plane. So we go from the quantum, which is outside, into the corporeal by measuring. So the measurement instrument or even the, the human eye brings this into our existence. So we are completely responsible for doing this. And yet we study it as if it's something to be disconnected from us, but, but we cannot help but completely affect this, um, this experiment. So, sorry, did you have something to say, Karen? No, but... <laughs> A lot of thoughts are passing through my head. So All right. Can we going. go back to the video? <laughs> then we can let you speak for a bit. 
Um, how do I go out? Of no, this? no, no. I, I, I want you to continue with what you're saying here because I think this okay. is really important. Okay, hold the thoughts. Hold the thoughts. Yeah, <laughs> they're they're gonna be very good. Um, so this is one of the main premises of of this book is that he basically fixes this. He resolves this this whole issue of the measurement problem, which I spoke about just now, by saying that we are on a higher ontological plane than the quantum particles. So whereas the scientists would say quantum particles give being, so basically you have, if you aggregate a lot of quantum particles, you have a table. Wolfgang Smith said, no, that's not true. They actually receive being from us. We give them being by observing them because we are at a higher ontological plane. And the same holds true for going up here and going up here because we also get being. We don't, like you don't get a human being by just um, aggregating molecules and blood and, and skin you actually have to receive it but that we'll, we'll, we'll leave that for for a later time in the uh, conversation now the form of causation that he says um, is necessary for this to happen is not horizontal causation and horizontal causation is the causation that we are used to so it's basically in time so if i uh, knock over my glass and the water falls on the ground that is horizontal causation my hand moved, it's in time, it's in space. Vertical causation is an atemporal event. And he proves this by basically saying that when we measure the quantum particles, um, when the quantum particles go from non-being to being, uh, the, the time that passes is faster than the speed of light. And this has now been proven because in 2022, there was a Nobel Prize awarded um, for proving that quantum theory beats relativistic physics. And the main premise was, can causation move faster than the speed of light? And yes, indeed, it can. It took a while, but now we have this Nobel Prize to give some credence to, uh, to Wolfgang's claim. So main takeaways from the book, vertical causation and moving up into a higher ontological plane. So that's that's mostly what I would want to say with this uh, with this icon. And which book was that from? Uh, Quantum Enigma. Yeah, that, that's what he says are the main, the most uh -huh. important things of that book, let's say. But vertical causation is one of them, and we're going we're gonna to be speaking more about that uh, later on, because Karen... Yeah, so basically, as I understand the Quantum Enigma, the, what physicists always struggled with is this idea of why is it that strictly based on observation things can change in the quantum realm and there's many yeah. many experiments that have been done on that the double slit experiment um, there's a lot of things that are kind of peripheral to that like the whole bell's equality all those experiments that have gone on and and uh, <clears throat> what Wolfgang came up with a very simple solution is that in order to measure, you have to have some sort of measuring device. And the measuring device itself cannot be part of the quantum realm because quantum realm is just particles. They're all disconnected particles. They're, you know, there may be 14 different kinds of particles or 22 different kinds of particles, however you parse it <clears throat> together <clears throat> or apart, but, but whatever measures it, there has to be some sort of a device. Now, some scientists say there doesn't really need to be a device. There just needs to be some entity that they bump into and then they come in 
coming to be. Well, even that entity is one level up though, because that entity exactly. is still more macro than the, than the, than the, um, than the quantum level. So what was going through my mind as you were talking is I, I was rereading the vertical ascent from, from particles to the tripartite cosmos and beyond. And of course he has his icon on the front there again. And viewers will remember the long discussions that Wolfgang had with John Verbeke. And out of that, I think John, one of the things John Verbeke took from those conversations was this idea of vertical causation, because now he actually uses that in his, in his discussions with other people. And um, you said that in your conversation, that, that you watched that video where John Verbeke was talking about vertical causation and you heard him describe it. Do you feel like reiterating what it was he said or, or the discussion? Uh, am I able to? Chat, the, the, the discussion you had with chat GPT about it before I head into this? Well, John's explanation was like a John Verbeke explanation, which I don't think anyone can really reproduce unless we, we pull up the clip itself. <laughs> So no, I don't think well, I'm, I'm well, actually I, able. I will I will pull up the clip if you will. And while I'm doing that, I want you to talk about your conversation with okay. ChatGPT about vertical. I'm going to discuss ChatGPT because I use this uh, this little bot for a lot of things, just to clarify some thoughts. But also, I think the chatbot actually gets a lot of things wrong because yes, I see it him, certainly does. <laughs> I see him equating or him or her uh, equating the corporeal with the physical, for example, when he speaks about. Wolfgang Smith's work. So I'm taking everything he says with a grain of salt, but I was just asking him like, what is vertical causation? And so he explains it to me and it makes some sense. And then I'm asking him for examples, which I think really helps the viewer. And one of the examples he gives, I thought was really nice because we've discussed this as well before. It's a biological example. Cause you were saying like, how do the cells know? Like how do cells know when to stop to form actual, um, like biological parts. So why does my arm know to stop at five fingers um, and stuff like this? And ChatGTP basically says, to quote a, a very good thinker, um, that the blueprint for that is like a higher existence. So the blueprint is that which gives vertical causation, that which causes my five fingers to to stop at five that's like so the blueprint for my the archetypal blueprint for my biological body is that thing which is in a higher ontological plane than my body itself so the cells well, i mean isn't that basically the platonic argument of forms i mean the idea exactly. that, that there is a, a unity and that multiplicity is seeking its way into that perfect unity for each form basically yeah, yeah. Exactly. And it's, it's, it's a beautiful image for me. It's the same with trees. You know, if you start to look at trees, you see all this variation, but at the end of the day, they, they share um, something inherent, like a, a blueprint. Like I said, some, some people call it an, uh, an archetype, but th there's something about that tree, which makes it not branch off and do super weird things. Like there's something that makes a tree, a tree. And there's something that makes a human, a human. And that has to be in a higher ontological plane. So well, and I've told this story before, but I had a tree guy at my house one time and he said, <clears throat> one of the things my husband likes to do is chop off 
extra stuff and put it in the recycling so that he keeps the recycling bin full every week, the organics recycling bin. And uh, the tree guy was saying, well, whatever you do, tell him not to cut off the top of the tree because that's where the crown is. And the crown of a tree is what tells the tree what shape to grow. Because no way. Every, yeah, every tree has a different shape. Some are more like an umbrella. Some are more like a pyramid. And the, the variety of tree, the information for how that shape develops is in the crown. So if you chop off the top of a tree when it's growing, the yep. branches will get all confused and they'll start growing straight up or they'll start growing oh. wiggy-woggy and the tree will not have its natural, beautiful shape that it's supposed to have. So there's something, there's some entity inside the tree as it's growing that the leading edge, the leading edge that's perceiving its way into the world, that leading edge is also sending information back to the tree as to how to grow. That's amazing. I'm just looking up crown of tree because I'm trying to like understand, but I, I see what you mean. So it's like the that base point where all the branches grow from. Well, no, so the top no, no, no. I mean that the, the branches grow out of the trunk, but the, the crown, if you if you just if you look at a tree, yeah, at the top, the very top, yeah. If you chop off the top when it's growing, the leading edge. If you chop off the leading edge, yeah, the rest okay, of the I tree will not know how to grow. Wow. Now the fact that they call it a crown is rather it's like a brain, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. I think it's beyond brain, though. It's more like the transcendent. Yeah, because it's beyond. Yeah, the transcendent part of the tree that is somehow in connection with the form that the tree is supposed to be, and then that information comes back into the tree and allows it to grow properly. I just imagine like um, a materialist listening to this conversation, being like, <laughs> what are these people on about? The Christians are going too far. <laughs> yeah, well, this, but <laughs> just, talk, just talk to a tree guy. There's a lot of interesting things about trees. I mean, yeah. when you actually start thinking about a tree, like when I started thinking about trees going beyond just, oh, they're interesting and they're beautiful and and all that, I started having thoughts of like, well, where does the substance of a tree come from anyway? It's just a little seed. Yeah. And, and even a sequoia tree is a very small seed, and yet they grow a thousand feet tall and massive, all kinds of mass. So I started asking myself, where does all that mass come from? So I looked it up online, which you can do. I'm thinking maybe it comes out of the water that's in the soil. And, and maybe there's something, maybe somehow that takes up through the roots. It takes something up from the soil. Most of the mass of a tree comes out of the air. Mm. The air has carbon in it. Oh, yeah, of course. Right. And yeah. so the tree yeah. is respirating in that carbon and then that's developing the mass of the tree. But if you start thinking about that on many different levels, you know, pneuma, the air and then mm. all of that, you know, I won't go into it because all these materialists <laughs> that are listening will just freak out. <laughs> I don't think there's any listening anymore. I think we lost them a minute too. Well, I have to watch myself because I don't want to lose the materialists. I mean, the whole point of doing this is so that maybe some materialists will ask some questions. Yeah. But that's one of the questions about trees. One of the other questions I had one day is, why is it that 
matter how tall a tree is, that that the nutrients are still getting up to the top of the tree. How does that work? Because when you look at, um, when you cut a tree off, the bark is really solid stuff. I mean, how does how do all those nutrients get up through the tree? But what, as, what do you mean all the way all the way up in the in the highest branches? You mean yeah, all the way up to the top of the branches. They get yeah. some of what they get from the sunlight and from the air and from the rain and all that, but they're also getting nutrients from the soil that are going up in the tree. And they're getting yeah. the water from the soil that goes yeah. up through the tree. I hear you. So as a tree is developing, you can look all this up online. There's a lot of interesting stuff. They they develop this particular kind of a cell that's like a like a tube, as though you took a straw and cut a small piece off of a straw. Yep. And it will, it will, these little straw tubules will be there. And then they will grow a next level of straw, just as though your straw had a, let's say you took a straw and cut it into pieces. And well, anyway, here's your straw. And then another straw pops up and lands on top of that straw. And so these little pieces of straw keep building on top yeah, of each yeah. other all the way up to build like little elevators that operate on. Um... Oh, I just lost the scientific term for when you're sucking water up through a straw capillary, the capillary action. Mm. So when the leaves dry out, they call out for water via capillary action and the water goes up through this tubule to the leaf. Oh my goodness. So capillary action is part of the way that it works. And the other part of the way that it works is from the pressure of the water from the soil pushing up. So there's a pushing and a pulling that gets the water from the bottom to the top of a 2000 or a thousand foot high tree. Well, yeah, that's yeah. incredible. So I, mean, I love the visuals. A, a thousand things you could learn about a tree yeah. just by looking it up online if you get curious. And they all have spiritual applications i'm just saying <laughs> i think there's a reason the tree is such a prevalent image in in spiritual traditions yeah there, there's so For much sure. there it goes really far the the metaphor let's say or the symbolism more accurately well so let's okay. get back to this thing about the the uh the quantum enigma the measurement problem yeah, we had the clip of. Uh... Then there's another problem that is uh, uh, that Wolfgang solves on this whole issue of the ontological planes, and that is the binding problem. As I understand the binding problem, which is something that the cognitive scientists work on, and uh, oh, maybe before we get to the binding problem, we should look at at the John Verveke video clip. Yeah, yeah, let's do that. This is with a DC Schindler, I think. Yeah, this is just yeah. a very short little clip. Right. And so this is with David Schindler and Kenneth Lowry. Um, John is talking. There was one last week on uh, why we need to, why, why we really have to bring back a, 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 a vertical causation that is not just epistemic, but properly part of the structure of reality. Right. And so part of what I, Tell me if this is putting words into your mouth or not, but I think what you're saying is, you know, Kant presupposed that all we meant by causation is this horizontal relation where 
things are moving each other because he's he's enmeshed within the Newtonian scientific Cartesian framework, and so and that all we mean by cause is making something move, right? And then yeah. yeah. and then movement, of course, is dependent on space and time. It can't be ultimate. Cause has to be locked within space and time. And then right. and then, but then there's this, there's this other notion of cause, which is not making move, but Bringing forth. I'm trying to. Yeah. I'm, everything yeah. I say can be can be assimilated into the movement thing because we've been doing it for four centuries. Yeah. But there's, yeah. this, there's the notion of vertical causation uh, that I've been trying to articulate with the axis of emergence and emanation, yeah. um, and the idea that there's a causation that is not like uh, about how things move each other, but how things. How things are present such that they are intelligible to us. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to go ahead. Yeah. Well, I and, and um, I mean, you know, w w one thing Wolfgang Smith is a profoundly interesting. Uh, uh, yeah. Part of Wolfgang's argument is the measurement problem, which is mm -hmm. the measuring device has to be at a different ontological level than the thing it measures, because it has to have a kind of it has to have a kind of constancy and permanence to it that the flux below doesn't have. You can't measure quantum things at the quantum level. You need something that has a reality. This is his yeah. solution, which I think is the only viable solution to the measurement problem. So science is not only pointing right to this vertical cause, it's presupposing it in every act of measurement. Um, yeah. You know, <laughs> Um, any physics that is trying to claim that only the bottom level is real is requiring on scientists at a much higher level, right, reading instruments and making measurements and talking to each other and making claims that could be true. And like, if that is all epiphenomenal and illusory, then it gives mm -hmm. us no license for drawing conclusions about the bottom level. That's like, right. there's, a, there's a sense in which reductionism actually really undermines itself when it tries to get its epistemology, its an ontology together. Yeah. yeah. No, and, that, and that's, I mean, in the end, that really is an incontrovertible argument. I mean, that, 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 that absolutely, it, once you see it, you can't, you can't deny it. It's one of those. I thought that was such a, I want to point out Jonathan Dumier's channel here. He doesn't have very many subscribers, but he finds wonderful clips and shares them. And uh, that was a great find because I wouldn't have watched that video probably just because I'm so inundated with videos. I mean, I wouldn't have watched the whole conversation that Ken Lowry had with John Verveke, and I would never have seen that, but it's a really nice little brief way of capturing that um, for some reason, the world is intelligible to us. Yeah. How can that be? If, if it's all just particles, how can it be intelligible to us? And vertical causation is that which is bringing forth the unity out of the multiplicity. And the very act of using a measuring device is that the measuring device itself has to be something that is of a permanent nature and not in flux because the quantum level is all in flux all the time. But the measuring yep. device itself has to have a permanency, which I think is really lovely the way John put that. So the scientists, without realizing that they're undermining themselves, are presupposing vertical causation in every act of measurement that they do. And um, one of the scientists that Wolfgang discovered that really supports his perspective is this scientist, J.J. Gibson. 
Now, J.J. Gibson was the reason that I thought it would be good to have John Berbakey talk to Wolfgang Smith, because I knew that um, John Berbakey was really interested in J.J. Gibson's work. J.J. Gibson had two aspects to his work. One side of it was what he calls affordances, and John Berbakey is always talking about affordances. And affordances, like he always holds up a cup, <laughs> right? A cup affords me many opportunities. It's not just a cup. A cup is something I can drink out of. A cup is something I can hold. A cup is something I could use to support my microphone. Uh, a cup has many affordances. And J.J. Uh, Gibson talked about that whole thing. And the cognitive scientists have really taken up a lot of the empirical research that J.J. Gibson did around this idea. But Wolfgang Smith happened on J.J. Gibson's work where he was um, exploring. He had actually been hired by the Air Force. Well, it was a very fledgling Air Force back in the day when planes were kind of a new thing. Mm. And it was during the war when they were trying to figure out how to find the, the pilots who had good enough visual perception to land one of these planes on top of an aircraft carrier. Because it turns out it's not an easy thing to perceive where the right spot is on the aircraft carrier to get that plane to touch down. So they had to figure out empirical tests that they could do with these pilots to figure this out. And J.J. Gibson realized that um, perception is not just inside, that visual perception is not just inside the head that the visual perception actually depends on the object that you are perceiving. And I know that to most of us, that sounds like, well, duh, of course, you know, but a lot of scientists have this idea that there is no actual object there, that it's all just these particles and that we've sort of learned to navigate our way around the particles. But JJ Gibson spent 30 years working on this concept that when we see an object that that object is actually there. And he did a lot of empirical work around that. And um, it made Wolfgang really happy when he discovered JJ Gibson's work. And so he quotes him quite extensively. There's a whole chapter in this book called The Mystery of Visual Perception where he's talking about Gibson's ideas. And the problem is this stuff just goes so deep. <laughs> it's a little hard to explain, but I'm going to read a little bit from the book and then maybe we can go back and talk about what is um, being implied there. So this is from page 131, if any of you are reading along in vertical causation. Events are perceived, Gibson assures us. And to enable us to comprehend this prodigy, he goes on to point out that there is no dividing line between the present and the past, between perceiving and remembering. Now, this is a very deep and tantamount, I take it, to the ontological fact that the present is not a part of time, as Aquinas declares. What is it then, that elusive present? It proves to be none other than what the scholastics termed the nunc stans, or the now that stands. 
And where else in the final count can the perception of events take place than in this nunc stans? Herein then, in this very recognition, resides the key to the enigma. What ultimately enables the perception of events, the perception of motion, is the fact that the primary percipient, it would be me or you, resides in the nunc stans, which in truth is none other than of eternity. So we talked about this a little bit before we came online, that the now is always past. <laughs> the minute I say now, that word is already in your heads and it's in the past. So, and the future hasn't happened yet at any moment. So the now itself is somehow not in time. There's no time in the now because there's no place for the now to be since it's the past is past and the future hasn't come yet. So Wolfgang is making the point that the now is of eternity. Wow. So when I'm doing my perceiving in the now, my, my, my now moment of perceiving, I'm actually in of eternity. So be here now, as you often hear, espoused. That this idea of that the presence is basically the highest state is beyond space and beyond time. Which which would make, make so much sense. But it also means, I think, that the idea that, that we are present at all is, is not true. We're closer to it, but actually our thoughts are everywhere. You know, we've got the monkey mind going on. So I guess what these people attain, when we were speaking about this earlier, after a lifetime of, of, of endeavors, is they finally get to the now. That that's that's a eternity basically. And it's completely beyond our existence, I think. Well, but I think what Wolfgang is saying is that he talks a lot about the Indian the Vedic way of thinking and, and of course the Christian way of thinking. So after reading this chapter, I'm going to, I'm going to try to put this in my own words. Okay. I think what yeah. he's saying is that in the same way that the quantum enigma, the measure, the measuring device has to be on another ontological level than what is being measured. That measuring device is measuring, and then when, when the measurement takes place, those particles come into the corporeal realm, right? If I just took that at face value, it would sound somehow as though I, as an observer, have some sort of power over existence. When I observe something, it comes into existence. I mean, this is one of the reasons that Einstein fought against this idea because he said, are you trying to say that the moon is not there when I'm not looking at it? Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. But I think yeah. what Wolfgang is saying is that if when I'm in the now, I'm in this nunc stans and I am actually at, at any given moment of now, that is my connection to eternity. But at the other end of that connection is the eternal observer, the eternal witness of events. So the only way that reality comes into being for me at any moment is that 
my now and his now are the same and we're connected and then the world comes into existence for me mm. much, in, much in what it you know it, the scripture says speaking of christ it says in him all things hold together yeah all being it's not an accidental that. statement no. in him all things consist it doesn't even mean hold together it means they consist so existence comes into being in him at every moment in time and i think that what wolfgang is saying is my my moment of perceiving is in the ev eternal connected to his eternal witness his holding all things together in consistence i mean yep. consistent coherent holes coming from him in the ev eternal realm I think that's what he's saying. So with that in mind, let's go back a page. Um, he says, how does one survey and integrate into a single picture the on-off states of a myriad neurons and do so in a split second, no less? This is the famous binding problem, which as I maintain actually admits no solution on the corporeal plane. This putting together is in truth affected by what is traditionally termed the soul or anima, which is able to accomplish this feat precisely by virtue of the fact that it pertains not to the corporeal, but precisely to the intermediary realm where spatial separation does not exist. Remember, in the intermediary realm, there's time but no space. It follows that visual perception originates not on the corporeal, but on the intermediary plane. I would point out that the binding problem for visual perception is, in fact, analogous to the measurement problem for quantum mechanics, in that it proves to be insoluble under the customary ontological assumptions. It reveals the existence of what may be termed the next higher ontological plane. In the measurement problem, the next higher ontological plane is the corporeal. Corporeal is the circle, the, the uh, what's being measured in the quantum realm is just outside the circle, that potentia, right? Yeah. In the binding problem, the next higher ontological plane is the intermediary. So the intermediary perceives the corporeal yep. through the ev-eternal. <laughs> the form comes from the ev-eternal through yep. me in the now in the ev-eternal. Um, and then just one more sentence I'll read. Having concluded that visual perception originates on the intermedi intermediary plane, um, we should point out that the causality upon which physics is based is consequently no longer operative on the intermediary plane because that causality on the intermediary plane, spatial bounds are transcended. So that causality cannot take place. You can't have a, a billiard ball bumping into a billiard ball on the intermediary plane because there are no spatial bounds. There are no boundaries there. It's all yep. time. 
So the causality upon which visual perception is based must in fact be vertical. Yep. So we're giving wholeness, we're giving being, well, let's say we're perceiving holes. Yes. In the corporeal domain, because we are attached to the intermediary and thus the, the eternal plane. So the, the measurement problem is not the binding problem. I think that's something that can really be confused. We discussed mm -hmm. this offline before, because the measurement problem relates to quantum physics, where we're going from outside of the corporeal to the corporeal. Whereas what you're talking about now, the binding problem, so the, the problem of us being able to perceive the cup as a cup and not a combinatorially explosive particle uh, business, um, that, that the problem that we can do that is, is also solved by the same cosmic icon, but it's a, it's one higher. So it's one, one level play. higher. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that you spoke about the corpus anima spiritus because it's very quickly, we're talking about body, soul, and spirit. Um, so the body being the corporeal level connected to that, the soul or the anima, that which animates is the intermediary plane. So it's within, within time and our spiritual side is not time nor space. So you can see what we spoke about before where we are not um, distant from nature. We are connected to nature. We're also connected to the, um, to the cosmos in this sense, because the cosmos is tripartite just like us. And I think that's beautiful. Yeah, I mean, it's really one of the things that makes Wolfgang's book so interesting is that he's looking at all these different things and pulling it together from many different directions. And um, I mean, I'm sure that there would be many that would accuse him of he has a particular point of view. And so he's going around searching for things that will present, um, you know, support his point of view. Yeah, And that's probably true, but in the course of a life, a long lifetime of doing that, he has discovered some amazing things that all fit together. Yeah. And the Gibson thing, I mean, Gibson, his theory is widely accepted from what I understand in the cognitive uh, scientific community, let's say, but the physicists have, haven't really caught on to him as, as well. But the fact that he, he discovered him on, on a chance it's, to mm -hmm. me, it's like such a such a special thing about this because clearly, otherwise, physis physicists wouldn't have gotten into contact with him um, thus far. And I think right now, it's it's important to to present this theory of ecological perception to people in other domains as well. Because I'm thinking also about metaphysicians who, uh, for example, metaphysical idealism. I don't know if you're familiar with Hoffman and and Castro. Um, I, think I have listened to quite a bit of Kastrup. I don't particularly like Hoffman's ideas, so I don't listen to it. it, it it's ho I, I'm not sure, actually. I don't want to misspeak because I, I think Hoffman's theory is like we are in the simulation. We take off the, the glasses and we're, you know, stuff like this. But the, the focus in on Kastrup, he's a metaphysical idealist. And I don't think, I'm not sure, actually, I tried to message him about this. I don't know how he squares Gibson's theory of ecological perception with his metaphysical idealism which basically says that it's all mind mm -hmm. um, we all consist of mind i really wonder if he can square that with that because i must say i was impressed with castro speaking with for i think he did very well he was on kurt's channel mm -hmm. um, i wonder if it fits into his 
idea because he does say all is all is mind, so he reduces everything to consciousness. I don't know if this interferes with with Wolfgang's work. I don't know what you think about that. Well, um, I have listened quite a lot to Castrop, and I might be misunderstanding him because of my own perspective of things. But it seems to me that at least part of what he's saying, he he. All these people are very careful when they say certain things. Scientific. So I think he may be avoiding coming right out and saying it. But when he says everything is mind, I don't think he means that everything is in his mind. Everything's oh. in my mind. He means all of us are in a mind. Yeah, that's what he says. Very explicitly. Right? Yeah. And that I think that he leaves open the possibility that the mind that we are all in is the mind of God. Yeah. Yeah, he said this because he's a uh, so he speaks Dutch. He lives in my country. He's been on Dutch podcasts as well, like national mm -hmm. ones. And he says he kind of avoids the term God, but he doesn't have any trouble with it. Like he can go to church as well and experience it. So he doesn't have, uh, have issues yeah. with it. But I, I think he just doesn't want to alienate people, to be honest, because he's such a scientific guy. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. Well, That's I mean, I because at, like you said, the minute we start talking God, we lose 80% of our audience. <laughs> so I can totally understand why um, people avoid using the labels that are, especially start using Christianese, because then you, lo you lose everybody. I mean, For sure. it doesn't really communicate to anybody. No. It doesn't really communicate to me. So, um, yeah, so... So going back to J.J. Gibson and this whole issue of uh, visual perception, there was something that you just brought up there that. I said it, if it would square with um, physicists, um, metaphysics of others. Not sure if that helps. Um, so. Oh, here it is. The gist of what Gibson discovered in the course of his painstaking research, which was designed to reveal how we visually perceive, is that this perception is based on what he terms the pickup of invariance from the ambient optic array. Okay, I'm, I'm sure you understand that, but I'm going to explain it for myself. I'm going to try to put it in my own words so that I understand it. The pickup of invariance from the ambient optic array Here's my ambient optic array out in front of me. It's all moving particles. In that optic array, there are some that are invariant. They're invariantly co cohesive. So I'm looking at a microphone. I'm looking at a bunch of post-its on my table. I'm looking at my keyboard. I'm looking at Lucas on the screen. These are invariantly in the optic array. And that's what I'm picking up when I'm perceiving. Well, in order to be invariant in the optic array, there's something holding you together. There's something holding my microphone together. There's something holding my keyboard together. That's why it's invariant in the optic yeah. array. Well, that made me think a lot about um, Esther Meek. And she did a lot of her work based on the work of Michael Polanyi. And Michael Polanyi had this idea about knowledge that, that there is a kind of tacit knowledge that is subsidiary focal integration. 
And what that that's, means, that's, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it took me, it took me a long time to figure that out. Okay. Um, but it's really very simple. Subsidiary is that which is kind of uh, peripheral. Focal integration, integrating it into a focus. So when you're learning something, there are, or, or let's put it in the terms of um, Ian McGilchrist, when he talks about the two different hemispheres. Yep. And he sometimes explains it in terms of why there have to be two hemispheres. You have a bird and that bird is trying to get that piece of grain, separate that piece of grain out from all the pieces of gravel on the, on the road. So the bird has one kind of focus that's very targeted towards that piece of grain on the road. But the bird also has to have another kind of focus that is peripheral, what's going on all around the bird so that they're aware of where dangers might be. They're aware of what they have to do next. They're aware of what they have to do with that grain. For example, uh, that bird might be picking up that piece of grain to go back and, and feed it to their babies. So they have to be careful not to swallow the piece of grain themselves. So they have to think about that. And maybe in order to make the grain palatable for the babies, they've got to gum it up and get it soft and then feed it to the babies. So they have to be thinking about that. So there's many, many different things that are subsidiary that have to be integrated into a focus. Yeah. So there's two kinds of focus. There's the targeted focus and there's the subsidiary focal integration. Well, doesn't subsidiary focal integration sound a lot like the pickup of invariants from the ambient optic array? <laughs> yeah. I think they're very similar things. And the thing about, the reason that that's important to me is that the way Esther Meek kind of takes Michael Polanyi's ideas is that this kind of knowing where we're, where our noose is open to the world and we're receiving what the world is giving us makes knowledge a gift that's coming from outside of me. So everything that there is to know is basically on offer to me outside of me. And it's on offer from a loving giver. So why do you say loving? Um, Why do I say loving? Well, that's probably my own bias. I agree with you. I just, yeah. I was wondering, I was wondering. <laughs> yeah. Um, I do believe that Esther Meek probably goes into that um, because she calls it a covenant relationship. For example, if you want to know something, one of the examples that they frequently use is uh, if you want to know how to take care of a rose bush or if you want to know how to ride a bicycle or if you want to know how to fly a plane one of the things you have to do is develop a relationship yes with that thing yep. and and a relationship that's not based on love is not going to be an an effective way of knowing i love so that. when you develop a loving relationship with your rose bush you're not going and saying, oh, I love you, Rosebush. You're going and looking at the Rosebush. Now, how could I best take care of this Rosebush so that it would thrive? And what do I need to know about Rosebushes? And how can I listen to my Rosebush to see what it needs at any given moment? And then the Rosebush gives me back beauty and, and a sense of 
accomplishment that I was able to help the rose bush. And, and so it, it turns into this reciprocal relationship. Yeah. And um, love is maybe a convenient word for that. You know? I have a lot of uh, thoughts right now. Well, first of all, I think this maps onto so many things because I was listening to a conversation about fear the other day. And it's this woman, she was an extreme skier. Um, so a lot of extreme sports, a lot of these crazy stunts. And she realized she was a fear junkie for most of her life. And then afterwards, she studied with the Zen master for, for like 15 years. And she wanted to try to understand fear. And she realized that the best thing to do with fear, contrary to what a lot of people say, is not to conquer it or to, to suppress it, let's say, but it's to dance with it, to get an intimate relationship with fear. And I think the same holds true for the mind. Um, if you've ever watched Verveke's meditations, he'll uh, akin the mind to a puppy. You don't scream at the puppy. You don't uh, discipline. You don't not discipline the puppy at all, but you try to like get a puppy. And then, no, that's not good. Like you, you get an intimate relationship, but it's love. It's, it's love is fundamental. And then I was thinking when you said this, um, because we're talking about us and, and the mind, let's say, or all these other things. What about God and, and humans? And I hope I don't throw people off again, but I'm, I'm really thinking about this Old Testament, New Testament type of thing. Because the big revelation from the New Testament, I think, is that we start equating uh, God with, with agape, with love. Um, I have it on my, on my arm here. And um, is it so that, that God maybe, I don't know, because he, he did, he, maybe he was more cruel before. I don't know, um, based on the stories I read. Maybe it's that he learns that, that the relationship is better to be had intimately in the, in the coming of Christ. Like he had to, to go down to learn how to, to dance with us so that he could develop the proper relationship Again, I don't hope I lost a lot of people. I hope I don't, don't lose too many people. Well, that, I mean, but... I, I want to throw in a little bit of a challenge. Um, oh, yeah. Let's say that the coming of Christ reveals to us that God is agape. Yeah. Okay. And one of the reasons that Christ came was to reveal to us that God is agape. <clears throat> Because we're so consumed with sin because of our, because of the fall, because of pride, because of um, refusing to trust that, that God cares for us, all of those things made it impossible for us to see God's love. But once you read the New Testament and you see that God is love, now go back and start at the beginning of the Old Testament and read mm. it again and tell me if you can't see God's love in every single thing that happens. Yeah. That was my experience. And the reason that that happened to me was that <clears throat> I also had this idea. Well, the Old Testament was the, the time of wrath and judgment and all that. And the New Testament is the time of love. But when my, my first husband left me when I was living in Japan, <clears throat> it was just an extremely traumatic experience and I was alone I didn't I couldn't we were missionaries and I couldn't take money from the mission anymore because it seemed like it would have been uh, duplicitous 
to take the offerings of people into our missionary work when all of a sudden we're this dissolved marriage. And I had some friends who were missionaries with YWAM, which is a terrific organization. And I was talking to them saying, what can I do? Every time I pick up the New Testament and start reading it, all I see is the judgment that my husband is under for what he's done. And I love him so much and I can't bear to see that judgment. It's just so painful. And they said, oh, yeah, don't read the New Testament because what you need to do is go back and read the Psalms. Go back and and, uh, and read the prophets. And, and there you will discover the love of God. Because they said it to me that way. When I went back and read it, I had a completely different perspective as I was reading. And I discovered that when you pray through the Psalms, you can see God's love in every aspect. And the Psalms also inform about so many of the biblical stories because there's, there's, you know, like Jordan Peterson is always showing how all these connections run all through the Bible. Yep. So there's hyperlinks all through the Psalms going back to earlier stories in the Old Testament and then being referred to in the stories in the New Testament. And so that was kind of my entry point to discovering the love of God was seeing how even when David was angry because of something God had done, he could work his way through that by praying, by singing, by praising, and then receiving truth at a deeper level in every one of these things. And uh, interestingly enough, our the church that I go to has recently been taking some of these Old Testament stories that appear to be stories of judgment really scary stories of judgment and they're looking at another level below and maybe another level below that even and talking about the implications of these stories and it's very exciting to me because it's almost as though the pastors have been listening to Jordan Peterson and Jonathan Peschel going back and reframing the way that they tell the stories but um, I think that in, in the same way that the present, your present experience can rewrite your past to a certain extent. Maybe, maybe you lived through something terrible and traumatic, but then when you come out the other side, you see, oh, I learned these beautiful things. That changes what that past experience means to you. So the present experience of Christ in the New Testament can go back and rewrite the whole Old Testament. You see it in a new way. I love that. I have, I feel exactly the same about the relationship I've had to my parents growing up and then having a breaking point and then looking back. And I just see it so clearly. And I was like, oh, have you ever watched Harry Potter? Something. I've seen some of the movies. I never okay. read books. Yeah. Okay, so in the end of Harry Potter, you see that actually the hero of the story is not Harry. It's not Dumbledore. It's actually Severus Snape. Because at the end of the movie, of all the movies, you see um, um, all the times that Snape was actually protecting Harry, even though it looked like he was trying to get in his way. He He basically sacrificed his whole life to protect this man. And I had the exact same same thing when I looked at the actions of my parents in hindsight. Um, it was like everything they did was from love. Like they wouldn't have put any effort into me if they didn't love me unconditionally. 
And yeah, I really see now the, the whole sequence with Severus Snape. <laughs> if people have watched Harry Potter in the comments, I'm sure they would, they would agree. But I think that's a beautiful framing. And it also shows, I think, that love comes in so many different forms. Like, for example, the, I mean, the, the Jews after Exodus or during Exodus, it's like they get, they get let out of exile. Mm. And then it's centuries. Like, like, that's love as well. They're the chosen people. And then people often say, well, I don't want to be chosen because that's not something that, that I want to endure. But um, of course they were loved. And so I really love that, framing it that way. And it's true, I think. It's not just it's not just like because we often speak about meaning as well this way, like I can give meaning to life. In Dutch, you literally say this, giving meaning. But so I think I discover it. And I discovered that love. You discover that love is almost everywhere. Um that's the key. We're talking about keys to the universe. I think that's the key to to a lot of things. Well, yes, and, and if we if we look back on this idea then of um love the of of knowing being a covenantal relationship that whole process of discovery of of knowing anything has to come out of experience that's that's our only avenue even you can read a book but it's not going to teach you anything if you don't somehow wrestle with what's in the book so even though it's all up in your head, you still have to somehow integrate it into you in order to learn anything from it. And your experiences teach you and your difficult experiences have some tendency to teach you more deeply than your easy experiences. <laughs> For sure. For you sure. Know? Those are the so, best ones. So that whole aspect of knowing, becoming this covenantal relationship with what you are, are beginning to know that works even when the the process of knowing is in the midst of a difficult season. You know, like when Jordan Peterson talks about the hero's journey and he falls into chaos and you're you're out there in the chaos and maybe there's something I need to learn in here. But in order to learn it, like that woman you talked about, you have to do that dance with what you're afraid of. You can't just run the other direction. You have to move into it and grapple with that fear that happens Definitely. in the chaos and that's how you learn from it. Right. Yeah. And I think it's also thinking about the struggle. I think a lot of people come to their deepest convictions in times of struggle. I've definitely felt closest to God in, in the, the hardest of times. And so I think it holds true for that as well. I think that's where you learn how to, how to do that because at some point you just lost for, for for answer you're lost for anything like you're like I, just give me something and it's like well you can start here just take my hand Let, let's just <laughs> let's start to dance or maybe wrestle or fight at first why don't we start with fighting i think that's a good way to start eventually it's going to be a dance though yeah I, I remember one time when i was um i was working with a, a therapist a counselor because i was I was just so confused at that point in life. And I was just all wound up. I mean, it was like, it was like, I don't know if you've ever seen these in the old days, people used to save rubber bands and sometimes they would save them by winding them kind of up into a ball and they'd end up yeah. with a big ball. That's all these rubber bands all stuck together. And that was the yeah. way my brain felt like it's just this mm. big ball of rubber bands all tied up. And 
I had an appointment to see this therapist and I went in to talk to her and I said, I'm immobilized. I, I can't say anything. I don't even know where to start. It's just so confusing. And she said, you don't have to worry about that. That's my job. You just start anywhere. <laughs> That's all you can do. Yeah. You just start somewhere and then you start talking and then, you know, you unwind a little bit and then you unwind a little bit more. And, and uh, yeah. So yeah it's, and it's, it's such a gradual, a ball of a, a ball of yarn <laughs> got all tangled up. Right. You just have to, Little by little. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how we got here, by the way. I think I completely. Well, because you said something about um, oh. one of the things that you discovered about your parents when it, that you went through a break with your parents. Oh, even even before, I think I asked you why loving. You said yes. loving God. Yeah. You're talking about knowledge. But, but did you want to say anything about that break or you just want to leave it there? I mean, it's okay either way. Oh, but it's, it's what we spoke about in the first episode we had together. Just my breaking point was like drinking way too much and um, failing in almost every way in, in, in life almost, except for in the gym <laughs> somehow. <laughs> that was my only anchor at the time. And yeah, coming home one night, just drunk out of my mind and shameful and my father being there to to catch me and to look in his eyes for me I felt so humiliated that was my breaking point and then the next day my parents were like we can't do this like something has to change um then you start to dig and then you have to start to learn and I know the self-help section of YouTube sometimes gets a bad reputation but for lost souls, it's a pretty good place to start. It's not an end station. That, that's all I say about it, I think. It's like, um, that was my hand calling forth. Like, why don't you start here? You're, you're, uh, you're someone that needs to access the, if we're talking about the tripartite nature, I need to access the spirit through, through the body. So mm -hmm. I had to get that discipline first and then slowly work my way up. Um, See, isn't that interesting? Um there is something about that embodiment that 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 that's the entry point for the entry point for all learning really yeah. i mean and that has to tie in somehow to this thing that we're talking about what do you mean the 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 whole vertical causation or the... well yes both aspects of the vertical causa causation the 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 quantum enigma and the binding problem, both of those seem to be solved somehow through embodiment. I mean, the binding yeah. problem, the solution is perception, but perception is, uh, is still a physical process. I mean, it comes in through mm. the senses. And the measurement problem, the only way to measure is through the senses. Yeah. Right? You have to... Yeah you're you're embodying the the measurement device you're building a measurement device which is an embodiment itself but the only way to build a measuring device is by being an embodied human being yeah right? no it works it, it really works because if we're looking at the cosmic icon as a circle and a thing you don't really see the hierarchy whereas if you're looking at alignment what you really want is so if we're talking about for example quantum on the bottom then you have corporeal above intermediary um, of eternal. I think the same holds true for, for what you said 
first getting with the body i think the the buddha said something about that um i'm not like paraphrasing but something along the lines of that you can liberate you can be liberated through i'm not sure sorry to people who are knowledgeable about this but through taking care of the body you go up the level because if you're stuck with the body and you've got all these problems and and these things you have to work through then then you're never going to ascend any higher i mean not a lot of people become spiritual just out of out of nothing they have to have a very rigorous physical discipline practice so i think you start with the body and then you and then you go up and it makes sense for alignment the other thing that i think is interesting to me is that so many of the people that resonate with this channel and that love to think about ideas um their work is very embodied work they're carpenters they're um painters they're truck drivers they're builders of some sort or another car you know they they um and they contact me and they say yeah so i'm doing this very physical work like uh ted steeritz who's right now doing this series with me about yeah. biological evolution and he's got an amazing mind but he's doing very physical work that's what he does very physical work he's not he's not a college professor or something right <clears throat> It's what uh, Matteo Pajot is doing as well now. Yeah. Saying like, I did the abstract things first. He didn't start with the body, but, and now he's like, okay, I need to learn how to weave. So he's learning how to weave and he's learning how to bake bread and stuff. Uh -huh. So like, yeah, I think it's very true. But that's how you're connected to the world, right? That's how you start to understand. It's you with your art, really. Yeah, I mean, it was me with my art for like 20 years, although since I started doing all this stuff, I don't have time to really do the art. <laughs> now the way I stay connected is by cleaning house and cleaning toilets and things like that, because that keeps yeah. me grounded, you know, and, uh, and trying once in a while to go out and do gardening, take care of the dog. Embodied, yeah. They're all embodied things, but definitely um, it's what keeps us from getting caught just totally wrapped up in the whole thinky talky thing right yeah it's for me it's my exercise like if i don't do exercise i'm i go crazy i get cooked up in my little brain so what's your exercise routine uh well basically i i've been lifting weights very consistently for about seven years so i do that about six times a week and then yoga i do twice a week with my girlfriend she's the she's the teacher mm -hmm. and the yoga it's also a bit more spiritual uh, into in the intermediary plane, let's say. But for me, I get to that through the body. So my girlfriend often says, um, you, you access, I'm not sure how she says it, access the, the spirit through the body. I don't think that's exactly what it is. But you, oh, no, no, it's like get into the body to get out of the head because we're thinking and cooked up in our brains all the time. So mm -hmm. when we start to exercise our bodies again, we get out of the head and we become a bit more present. And that, that's a very important practice for me. But lifting weights has always been my, um, my piece, let's say. And it gives me time to listen to all these conversations as well. So that's always very nice. What just popped into my head is Romans 12, 2, 12, 1 or 2, something like that. Um, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Mm. I think the renewing of your mind doesn't come from thinking. The renewing of your mind comes from doing. 
Yeah, right? definitely. Yeah, definitely. Because uh, it, it lets your mind, like even um, if you forget a word or you forget some idea, if you if you really try to stay up in your head and figure it out and remember it, you're never going to remember it. But if you just go and do something, yeah. it will come back up and your mind will be renewed, right? Yeah. So, um, I, I do think that the physical world is really important somehow to our our essence as human beings. Oh, for sure. And I don't like that the the idea nowadays is that like thinky people, they don't do anything with the body. Like the the stereotypical scientist is like a nerd with glasses, very skinny, you know, whereas and, and philosophers as well, to be honest, whereas Plato said that every philosopher should be an athlete, you know, and I think that's really how it should be. It makes a lot more sense to me. Mm-hmm. It's cliche, but like healthy body, it's a healthy mind. And really, I think it's true that you need to uh, to get with your body to start to align with your spirit. Okay, your you're soul. inspiring me. <laughs> <laughs> Karen, I must say, I cannot believe, uh, because when I first came across your channel, I thought you were maybe in your 50s. And I really don't understand. I think the screen is very friendly. I do. <laughs> because I, I'm really confused. Like, what, what did you do to look so young? I, I don't understand it. Well, I, I, I mean, if, I, if, you, if you had a close-up, I wouldn't look all that young. <laughs> but um, what did I do? I do think you I said think on the first I, part podcast. Part of it's genetics because my, yeah. my grandmother looked pretty young until she was in her 70s and then started going downhill from there. And I've certainly noticed for myself, um, five years ago, I looked way younger than I do now, but I had a particular kind of surgery that sort of sent my my mm. uh, hormones in the wrong direction. And so I've aged mm-hmm. quite a bit in the last five years. But I remember a verse in, in Psalms, which I used to be accused all the time of being my, my older daughter's sister because I was only 22 when she was born. So when I was like 45, she was 23 Mm. and people would always accuse us of being sisters. But at that time that one of my favorite verses was um, he restores my youth like the Eagles. Mm. Because I do think there's something about um, trying to walk in peace with God that does restore a person's youth on a consistent oh, yeah. basis. Um, if you're not anxious, if you're not angry all the time, you know, <laughs> frowning and whatnot. And and I also notice because when I'm when I'm online here, I'm much more conscious of keeping an uplift in my face. Yeah. Um, if I start listening to somebody and I just kind of let things droop and you hear it in the voice, huh? You know, <laughs> <laughs> I can look old too, you know. Nah. That happens. But if you if you keep yourself, if you if you try to always think about uplift and peace and joy and let that it, it does help with the face, certainly. Yeah. Um I have not been as consistent with exercise as I should have been. So I'm mm-hmm. part of the reason why I had to have these two hip surgeries is that my joints kind of got whacked out one way or another from not getting enough exercise, I guess, or, or maybe doing the wrong kind of exercise. Mm. Now that I've had both hips replaced, I have lots of energy and I'm not in pain anymore. So that makes a difference too. You had it recently, right? 
the surgery. Yeah, I had the first surgery in the fall of 20 and then the second surgery last fall in 22. So it hasn't been a year yet since the second surgery. But they were both very kind of traumatic, very painful. The recovery was very painful. And one of the things that's really powerful about that kind of thing is how much you learn about yourself and what you're capable of enduring and and really what you how much you can walk through with god i guess maybe yeah. it's a good way of putting it yeah and oh. uh, yeah i i mean i think especially the younger generation is a little bit afraid of suffering because they've mm. grown up in a well, first of all, they're young. They haven't had all that much suffering. And then they've grown up in a much more. Um, I know I know that the last two generations have struggled a lot fina- more financially than the previous generation. Yeah. So I understand. I'm not saying that there aren't reasons to be disturbed about the way of the world, but but they're also they did grow up in a little bit more cushy circumstances oh, for sure. their parents grew up. And so there's also a lot more fear wrapped mm. around suffering, but, but suffering is such a part of the world and such a part of what helps us grow that I think somehow we have to get that message out that in some sense you have to like that lady, who was the lady you talked about that said you have to dance with the fear Kirsten something. She was a extreme sports person. Oh, extreme sports person. Yeah. 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 No, definitely. I was going to say, um, I completely lost it. <laughs> Sorry. What, what did you say just now? Uh, oh yeah. Fear, suffering. That's it. Yeah. I hear you. No, I think that um, something that's very true of this age is that a lot of us, my generation, haven't really lived through anything. So something that is slightly worse than optimal is the worst thing that they've ever experienced. Mm-hmm. And it's really true. Like, it's the worst thing they've ever experienced. For a lot of people, that, that was like a lockdown. Like the worst thing they've ever experienced is the end of the world. And so that completely changes your, your view. Whereas people who have endured wars, I mean, it's nothing to them. Mm-hmm. But relatively speaking, it's like, like wow. But I think that the that we are gonna get eventually a stronger generation from this because, like you say, financially it's a it's impossible. Yeah. So yeah. I think that's coming. I think we're gonna get a very strong generation. Yeah, for sure. Well, it also seems like the the um, after each election, people on either side just panic and like, oh my god, in in the United States, I can't believe how are we gonna li- how are we gonna live through this this <laughs> term ending. of this person. Yeah, And I'm like, I've lived through lots of elections, both ways, both sides. Somehow we survived them all. You know? And, and there've been really terrible things that have come out of the, the administrations on both sides over the years. Yeah. And somehow we've lived through them all. And uh, yeah, <clears throat> I think it was Theodore or no Franklin Roosevelt who said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And yeah. And that's really true. Like my other daughter is always telling me that fear is the opposite of love. So if you let yourself fall into fear, then you're not open to love. Mm. 
Yeah, that could be. Yeah, I, I mean, also, I think it's a pretty yeah. good it's a pretty good uh, place to put your roots down anyway, because then when you start to fear, you can think, wait a minute, am I being loving in this moment or am I giving mm -hmm. in to fear? I've definitely seen my capacity for love improve as my fear diminished because it allows you to trust again. Mm -hmm. Let's say like you have to really be intimate with your fear, know it before you can really trust someone, let's say, and go for a, a deeper relationship. Mm -hmm. And I must say also about suffering, what we spoke about before, saints suffer the most, like the people that are the most holy, they suffer by far the most. I mean, there, there's a reason we have Lent, stuff like this. It's very averse to our uh, to our normal way of being, but it's it's really how you learn, I think. So, I'm sure that that looks really strange to the materialists out there when they see a saint carrying with them the pictures or the icons of saints. You see them carrying with them the instrument of their torture. Um, but then Christ carried his instrument of torture up the hill too, you know, and uh, yeah, there's a lot there. Wow. Mm. How did we get there from Wolfgang Smith? <laughs> I have no idea. I do want to say one thing though that I remembered, I, I forgot saying about Corpus Anima Spiritus, mm -hmm. so body, soul, spirit. I had a conversation with my dad and he's really obsessed with this tripartite distinction as well, but he takes it from the Psalms actually. So the Psalms have a, have a Hebrew version, which um, is Soma, Ruach, and Nefesh. So this, it's a bit different from the, from the Platonic one. But all that to say, in the talk I had with him, we were speaking about playing football. And I forgot to mention that it's my exercise thing, but I don't, don't really see it as exercise. When I play football on Fridays here, um, I activate, activate my body, my soul, and my spirit. So I'm aligned there. Like it's something that in every way connects me to that. And my dad said, that's the flow state when everything is aligned, mm -hmm. you know, that that was really a connection where, where I heard like, wow, that makes, that makes so much sense. It was really like a, a thing. And I think it ties in well with, with what we've speaking about, what we've been speaking about, because we're trying to access the spirit and the soul through the body. Um, and I don't get that with weightlifting, for example, because there's no play, there's no, um, you know, connection with others, let's say. Mm -hmm. So it activates all these things, like like your social side, your loving side, the relationship, the dance. Um, so I just wanted to add that because I thought it was a really, really beautiful thought. Um, but, uh, but yeah, going back to Wolfgang. So the, the Soma, Ruach, and Nefesh, the Soma would be the body. Yeah. The ruach would be the... The soul, I think. I'm going to check very quickly. Ruach, I think, is the, is the soul, yeah. And then Nefesh would be the spirit. Okay. We, oh, no. Ruach is the spirit. I thought it was the opposite. Ruach no, right. is, the, yeah, my is bad. the spirit, right? Yeah. Because Ruach um, relates to pneuma, like yeah. air. Ruach means air or breath. In here yeah, too, I think, and then the nefesh is the is the soul. So okay. another guy that I like to uh, I like a lot of what he says is Dallas Willard. I don't know if you've read any of his work. Oh no, he has a book called The Divine Conspiracy, and uh, I've heard the name of the book. He yeah. was a uh, he was a 
a teacher of philosophy and also a thinker on a lot of theological issues and um he liked Edmund Husserl and his ideas and so a lot of what um Dallas Willard has come up with or came up with he's passed away now was um out of his thinking about Edmund Husserl but the way he describes soul is that which brings about integration in in the entity in which it resides so in that sense even a plant has a soul mm. yes because there's something that integrates all the different parts of the plant into one entity yeah and that that's the soul of the plant but does but does it apply to to us could you explain that example if you go from the well, from there's the something in us that integrates every aspect of us. I mean, every cell in my body changes at some point, and over the course of seven years, all the cells in my body are new cells from where they were before. Some parts of my body renew every week. Yeah. And um, the me that I was when I was one year old is completely, in many ways, different than the me that I am now. And yet, yeah. There's somehow some way in which I am identical to that me that I was when I was born. And it has to be beyond the, the corporeal, right? Ex exactly because of what you say. Yeah, it has to be. Yeah. So, so there's something, it's, it's something that is integrating. I mean, maybe, maybe this uh, soul is that which is that which is connected to the ev eternal. Mm. Who knows how all this stuff works? I well, mean, the soul. <laughs> idea how it all works. We got the soul at the at the intermediary, right? I think if we're if we're doing the tripartite yeah. idea, and then we have the spirit on top, I think. So at the at the ev eternal, but in many yeah, ways but he differentiates the ev eternal from God. Yes, God that's is for above sure. the ev eternal. Yeah. So, um, and the ev eternal is not the same as the eternal. Mm. Yeah, so yeah. it's a very yeah, strange yeah. concept i mean i yeah. i haven't really nailed all that down but we're going to have a part three so <laughs> yeah. what, what is part three going to be about lucas we're going to be speaking about science and myth this is a book he wrote um mm -hmm. really trying to explore how science is a myth and has become our myth has become the story through which we live and yeah basically the idea that we spoke about before where the map is not the territory we explore the, um, I would say, implications it has, the consequences it has on the society at large, how we can get out of it. And um, I think we'll have a lot of <laughs> meanderings along the way. So uh, I think, Karen, this has been like the, the messiest one, but it's the one I've enjoyed the most thus far because I've had so many thoughts pop up. Like I still have 10 things I, I wrote down that I wanted to speak about, but I've, I've loved it the most. So uh, So thank you. Well, keep keep those ten things on your on your notepads. So we can talk about them next time. I don't want to lose it. <laughs> we'll do. We'll do. Thank you so much for your time yeah. again. Have a All wonderful right. week. It's been really great, Lucas. Thank you so. Thank much. Thank you so much. See you soon. Bye.